Hello, my name is Charles Johnson, and this is the Alabama Entrepreneur Podcast. Alabama entrepreneurs telling their stories, giving us a better understanding of the small business experience. Carrie Bone, owner of Grain Turner. Carrie, you are an amazing artist of custom writing pens, seam rippers, bottle stoppers, and antique style pepper mills. You have won awards and been interviewed by Southern Living. How did you learn to do this trade? So, first of all, I'd like to thank you for the uh, compliments on my work. I do appreciate that. It was literally by watching a lot of uh, YouTube in the beginning. YouTube is a great resource. Uh, you can really get out there and see how others are also uh, performing some of the very similar tasks that you want to perform. After watching the YouTube videos, I decided, hey, let's go ahead and see if we can you know, emulate um, as you're going through that process, my personality is such that I'm very OCD and I'm very driven to excellence and strive for excellence. So at that point, it just became trying to hit the marks consistently every single time. And I'm still learning for certain. When you started, you really started this as a hobby? Yes, absolutely. When did you start actually selling the pens? Uh, so first started selling the pens, I'd say around 2018. After I felt comfortable with my work and confident in my work, you know, my wife told me, hey, look, you know, you start to turn 10 pins for you need to find something to do here. So I found out about a local artisan market um, and I decided to attend. Very first weekend that I attended, uh, I was able to make a few sales that kind of boosted the confidence a little bit and kind of, you know, helped give me that drive to see if I could duplicate that. You know, you fast forward to here in 2021 and I'm still trying to duplicate that success. When you were transitioning into a business, when did you decide that this was a business? So the thing that really drove that whole decision was several things. The first of which is that I made a conscious decision about a couple of years ago that I wanted to start focusing on some of the more exclusive venues. I really want to kind of, you know, identify my demographic and to participate in those venues, you had to have your business license and not only your business license, but you had to have your date, your county and your city tax ID as well. So at that point, in order to ensure that I could attend those venues, I was like, let's go ahead and make sure that I am playing by the rules. Once you get your tax ID, you really have to follow through every month with sales tax, mm. whether or not you have any sales or not. That's correct. Did you have to learn that process? No, thankfully, uh, my Alabama taxes, I think it's myalabamatax.gov, does a great job of providing information to the uh, business owners uh, or potential business owners. By the 16th of each month, I believe it is, when you have to file those taxes. And you are correct. If you don't sell an item, well, guess what? You enter in that form. It is a big zero. And there are times where I've been on that side of it. You know, you kind of go through a dirt. When you do execute those sales, they know that about you. You need to make sure that you're reporting those accurately and on time. And if you don't report those on time, there are penalties as well. That's a lesson I learned the hard way. I end up missing it, missing that cutoff point by maybe a week or so. And I paid the premium for missing that cutoff window. <laughs> and you learn fast Absolutely. not to miss it again, right? <laughs> That's correct. You have a variety of equipment to help you make your products. How did you know what to get, what brands to get to make these products mm -hmm. so special? Mm, that's a really good question there. For me, again, I used a lot of our research. 
I use YouTube as a uh, research tool. I also used a lot of the online forums as a uh, research source. And at the end of the day, I just kind of follow my own gut instinct. You know, when I'm making my purchasing decisions, uh, I tend to look for a value with some of the components. But for the critical components, in this case, my lathe, I did choose to spend a little bit more than I really wanted to initially to ensure that I had a product that was maybe a level of two uh, more than being just right sized for where I was at the time. It was something for me to grow into and it was a good quality brand, something that I knew the manufacturer would back up if I had any kind of issues. So that thought process drove a lot of my procurement uh, decisions. Do you know how much it cost to start this business? Offhand, the answer is no. But... I do have the data. Uh, I actually use software, accounting software, uh, to track all of my expenses and obviously all of my sales as well. So that data and information is definitely available. And I guess when you started, you may have bought one piece of equipment here and then added another piece of equipment before you even got started with an actual business because you were doing this as a hobby. That's, that, is, that is exactly correct. Absolutely. Were you able to write off the purchase amount of products that you were using back during a hobby mm -hmm. or what did your accountant say about that? Yeah, so that's actually another really good question. So for me at the time, I, when I started out, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't violating any tax rules or anything like that. So I chose not to go back and try to claim depreciation on those assets. So essentially, I just kind of took the loss, if you will, on, on those uh, potential write-offs. Now, are they actual write-offs? No doubt about it. But again, being very young, I chose not to claim those deductions or depreciation. Do you buy most of your products that you use to build your products online? Mm -hmm. I do, absolutely. And you have found companies that you like to deal with? Absolutely. And companies that back up their products? That's correct. So this is a high-quality pen. So you have to find high quality products to build your pen. Mm -hmm. How did you go about finding what was low end, mediocre to high end for your product? Got it. So the main source of that information for me, believe it or not, going back to YouTube here, uh, I watched a lot of videos on, I literally would search for luxury writing instruments and you can pick up real quick what the you know what that target demographic and that target target audience sees and desires however you also have to know too that not everyone's going to want to spend you know two hundred dollars on a writing instrument you know there may be some people who want to support what you do but they can only you know spend 40 bucks 50 bucks or whatever that value is so i tried to make sure that i found components that could actually cover all of those bases so at the end of the day no doubt about it again youtube and forums those were just great resources. You start to learn also very quickly when you go to some of these other venues and you see, you know, your competition and what they're doing as well. Some competition will only focus in a certain uh, market or target a certain market, and then others will, will target a higher-end uh, market as well. Um, so once you found someone who's targeting a higher-end market, you start to look at what type of component sets they're using, and that's another data point for you. How do you stabilize the wood in order for the wood to become hard mm. and that it doesn't fall apart, you know, five years later. Absolutely. So the stabilization process is a pretty involved process. In order to do it effectively, you want to start with material, first of all, that's completely dry. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is that you want to make sure that that moisture content is as close to zero as you can get um, because moisture is one of your worst enemies when you're trying to stabilize. 
After you've gotten your material to where it's dry and ready to be stabilized, uh, you will use a stabilizing solution. So it's a liquid that has the viscosity of fairly close to water. You will take that, you will insert that into a typically a vacuum chamber and pull a vacuum on that somewhere between negative 25 to negative 30 inches of mercury or so. And as you're pulling that vacuum, you're going to notice the air start to evacuate from the material. And you'll notice that because you'll see just a lot of bubbles, almost this violent, you know, turning of bubbles going on inside of the uh, chamber. And that's good because that lets you know that you're removing or air from that material. When that material or the, the stabilizing solution gets to a point to where there's very, very little bubbling or no bubbling preferred, you can release your vacuum. Once you release the vacuum, the wood or material in the resin uh, is absorbed. You then want to let it set typically about twice the amount of time that you've had it in the vacuum so that it can absorb more of the resin and make deeper penetration. At that point, you'll throw it in a toaster oven and let the resin cure. And once that resin has cured, you've essentially, I'm quoting here, petrified the material. That helps to protect it against future movement, checking, splitting, cracking, things of that nature. You have ballpoint, rollerblade, and fountain pens. What is the difference? So the uh, ballpoint uh, instruments are, those are going to be your most common type of uh, writing instruments. Uh, most people who start out will typically gravitate to a ballpoint uh, because number one, it's not going to be typically a very expensive item. It typically has a really nice size to it and good balance and good weight. But you also move from the ballpoints to the rollerball pens. Now, typically most people will use rollerball pens because they prefer a longer body, something with a little bit more you know, weight to it as well. Uh, but more importantly, the writing experience changes when you move from a ballpoint to a rollerball. Most people will say that with the rollerball pen, you put that nib on the paper and start to move and that ink just flows, you know, effortlessly, especially if you have a real good refill. That turns into the second reason, second difference between a rollerball and a uh, ballpoint. A rollerball can typically carry a little more ink also, so you have a greater ink capacity. Then moving from the rollerball pens to the fountain pens, it's a big difference between the uh, previous two. And the main difference is that, uh, so instead of having a nib in which there's a preloaded refill, you typically have a preloaded cartridge in your fountain pen along with a converter in the fountain pen. The converter allows your user to draw from his or her favorite ink bottle if they choose to do so. The preloaded cartridges, they literally just snap in place and allow you to easily you know, change between various inks and things of that nature. And not only that, but there's a nib on the front of your fountain pen that flexes. And depending on the amount of flex, that's going to determine how much ink flows, depending on the angle in which you present the nib to the paper, that's going to depend on the stroke also, either bold, fine, wide, narrow. It's just a completely different ball game there. Are your pens on the level of quality as what Mont Blancs are? So I think the answer to that question is it depends. So the components that I currently carry I would not put them in the same category as a Mont Blanc. And the reason why is because I'm targeting right now a specific audience. I'm, I'm targeting an audience that's willing to, or looking to spend between, I'd say, $40 and $150 or so. However, I do also have component sets here uh, that now puts me in a completely different category. For instance, I have component sets that I have spent literally $50 or more just on the components themselves. 
that doesn't include the actual resin pour or the body. That's just the core components. Uh, so I do have component or access to those components if I choose to be on that same level, if you will. So I, I guess to answer the question more directly here is that it just really depends on what the end user wants. If the end user prefers something that's on that quality, on the Mont Blanc quality or higher, I have access to the component sets. And you customize products, so you could build that for somebody. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is definitely an easy process. Okay. And so your decision, which is really based on your business model, you keep it between, you know, 40 to $150. Mm -hmm. And that's the range that you feel comfortable with charging. Mm -hmm. uh, and then maybe you'll have another category one day that will be in a different demographic. Mm -hmm. That's correct. And is that your plan? So that is correct, actually. What I found, uh, some of the venues that I've, or most of the venues that I've attended so far, I feel like I've gotten a pretty good gauge now as to, you know, what the customer base wants to spend on a writing instrument. Keep in mind, though, that I haven't been able to um, really, you know, penetrate the market to where the uh, those aficionados are. If I can get into that market, now all of a sudden I have a whole new audience that I can cater to. And you are correct, that will allow me now to, or then, to start offering a different set of uh, products. And I have thought about it already. Uh, the line that I was thinking about here is what we call the executive line. Uh, and the executive line is, will allow me to offer those components. You have a full-time job, and you come home and you do this because you love it. How much time do you spend after work working on Graham Turner? Mm. So it depends, actually. It depends on the time of the year. Right now, and probably through the summer months, I would say I'm probably spending about another you know, three hours or so after I get off work. Uh, I typically leave work around uh, 4 o'clock or so. I can be home around 4.30, um, and you're right, you have to change clothes and uh, you know, head to the shop and get get to working. And the reason why I try to be in the shop no more than about two and a half to three hours or so is because I need to make sure that I spend time with my wife as well when she gets home you know, from work. When I watch your videos on YouTube, it's very interesting to watch you. And uh, you also play some classical music mm. uh, in the background. Uh, it's almost like something that could kind of put you to sleep, make <laughs> you very relaxed. Why have you chosen that route in order to build your brand like that? Well, I I think it really comes down to seriousness. Uh, you know, I, I feel that, you know, everything that I do, I put a lot of time and effort into it. I strive for quality. I strive for excellence. And I just feel that uh, I want to make sure that the quality of my videos uh, reflects that. And I also want to make sure that the music that I associate with my videos, you know, complements that as well. I try not to go overboard with the music. I typically only will really like to play that towards the end of the build. And I kind of see that as being more of a crescendo, if you will, to revealing the final product. How do you market this business or what have you found has worked the best to market this business to let people know what you're doing? I have tried using Facebook ads in the past, but what I find works best for me, honestly, when I'm in front of my customers, either potential customers or customers who buy products, word of mouth, that is the that has been the best advertisement for certain. Now, I will admit, uh, last year during COVID, Southern Living discovered me and they ran an article in June and I also was featured in their gift guide in December. Holy smokes, that opened the doors. That advertisement, that visibility was literally kicking the doors wide open at that point. 
How did you get that interview with them? Just at work one day, checked in my emails randomly, you know, um, and I see an email come through. I was like, well, this can't be legit. Maybe this is some sort of spear phishing attempt or something, you know. But a second email came through, so I decided to follow up. And uh, sure enough, it was legitimate, and it went from there. Uh, I wonder if they saw your pictures on Instagram. I hope that they did. <laughs> those, those pictures are fabulous. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And speaking of pictures, how are you able to take pictures so well? Mm -hmm. I have a little bit of a background uh, in photography, and I've learned some of the, or I brought some of the skill sets that I've learned in the photography world into this uh, market as well. And the biggest key for me has been, A, consistency. I wanted to make sure that I had a consistent feel with all of my uh, imagery. In order to get that, I chose to go with more of an airy feel, a light and airy feel, uh, something that was decluttered uh, because I wanted the emphasis to be on the product. So to achieve that, I use a light box. I have a couple of adjustable lights, 150 watts each. And I have backdrops that I've uh, procured also that are typically used for, say, food backdrops, things of that nature. And that allows me to kind of change the mood, change the feel every once in a while. And then lastly, I'll add a couple of props here and there as well to kind of help engage subtle hues. What advice do you have for others that have a hobby that may be considering going into business for themselves? Mm. So my, I think the biggest recommendation or advice that I have is go for it. If you're thinking about doing it, I'd say go for it. Not saying going in blindly. You know, make sure you do your research. You know, uh, reach out to others who are where you want to be and just go for it. And sometimes the hard part is just going for it. Absolutely. I mean, admittedly, I was in that boat in the very beginning. You know, I was like, man, do I really want to, you know, get out here and take that chance and show my work? What if I go out there and show my work and no one, you know, supports me at all? You know, how, how, how is that going to make me feel? How will I handle that? You know, but at the end of the day, the way I was raised was, look, you know, you just uh, grab a bull by the horn and you, and you go for it. And that's what I did. I took that shot and uh, things are definitely, we're picking up momentum. And you try it, you learn from it. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, you've been successful. That's, yes, yes. And once you've learned, the, you, you, you obtain these lessons or those lessons learned, then you pay it forward also. I think that's, that's critical also. Um, I have a couple of uh, you know, friends who are also uh, pen turners. Um, and I've tried my best to, you know, help mentor them um, as much as I can. Um, I've had a gentleman reach out to me recently on uh, Instagram, and I've offered to do the same as well. I think that's wonderful. And so no jealousy with uh, other people trying to do what you're doing. Nope, not at all. Not at all. I really would like people to see your work. So where's the best place that they can find you to see these pens? So digitally, the best place to see or to go to see my uh, instruments will be my website. Uh, that's actually brainturner.com. I'm also on social media, uh, Instagram and Facebook. I guess the easiest way to find me on those platforms would be just to do a search for a hashtag brainturner. That's G-R-A-I-N-T-U-R-N-E-R. -E um, if you're in the local area or don't mind traveling, um, I'll be showing my work beginning in September. That's really when my show season begins. Uh, there are a couple of pop-up shops that I'll probably do before September, but that first week of September, that's when it begins for me. Um, I'm literally booked. I'll have a show every other week, essentially, running through uh, December timeframe, first of December. And where are those? So the first uh, will be uh, in Scottsboro. That's the uh, Scottsboro Art in the Park. I'll be also supporting the uh, Bluff Park 
uh, Fine Arts uh, Festival. I'll be supporting the, the Decatur River Clay Festival uh, or Fine Arts Festival. The Randolph Under the Christmas Tree uh, at the BBC. The Northeast Alabama Craftsman's Association or NECA uh, Fall Show at the BBC. The Gingerbread Marketplace, Morris Mill Road Agribusiness Center. That's just to name a few. I've, I have others that I'm waiting to uh, receive a notification, either acceptance or rejection. One more question that I'd like to ask you about. How did you decide to get into getting the other products lined up? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the items outside of the running instrument? Right? Yes. Okay, yeah. So it was a conscious decision. Uh, normally when you go to a lot of these events, there's typically someone else there who turns pins. What I typically find those that, you know, my style would be different from his or her style. So that's a discriminator that I feel is in my favor. But I also wanted to make sure, though, that I had something else to fall on, if you will, something to kind of uh, differentiate myself from the other pen turners out there. So that's one of the reasons why I started carrying the seam rippers and the bottle stoppers and the uh, antique style pepper mills. Um, what I'm finding, though, is that some of the other items that I carry are starting to compete or starting to compete with time that I need to turn my writing instrument. So I'm going to have to make some decisions uh, this year. Um, so, you know, some of the products may be, you know, contracting a bit, some of the lines. Uh, I might be replacing those with others, uh, but uh, those are decisions I have to make. All right. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to add to this interview? So I guess uh, I'd like to just close by thanking you uh, for reaching out and giving me the opportunity to uh, have the interview. Uh, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, when I saw the uh, message come across, uh, I was like, again, is this, is this real? You know? Uh, like how someone discovered me, I'm just a, you know, one man, literally a one man band working from a garage that I built three years ago, you know, so uh, I appreciate you, uh, you know, reaching out to me and giving me the opportunity to uh, share my story. Well, and, and thank you for saying yes, because I, uh, I just think it's a, a wonderful business. Well, I, I appreciate that also. You know, one of the things that I communicate on my website here, uh, just right off the bat, you know, I really place emphasis on aesthetics uh, and ergonomics. And I try to close things out by stating that if it doesn't meet my standards, then it doesn't leave my shop. And I really hope that, you know, whoever decides to support, you know, what I do, um, when they receive their instrument, whether it be the same ripper writing instrument, bottle stopper, or antique style pepper mill, I hope they, they see and feel the passion that, I, that that's gone into making that instrument. I take no shortcuts. Um, and I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not one of these pin turners who uh, like to focus primarily on quantity. I, chosen to place my emphasis on, you know, hitting my marks every single time. And those marks are form, fit, function, and finish. Well, there you have it. Carrie Bone, owner of Grain Turner, another great Alabama entrepreneur. And thank you very much. Yes, sir. Thank you. If you want to enhance your experiences throughout the great state of Alabama, I urge you to seek out locally owned small businesses. They will certainly increase your happiness. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving it a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening.